Our special guest today is Governor Kristi Noem of the great state of South Dakota. She's South Dakota's 33rd governor and the first woman to serve in that post. Also represented South Dakota in Congress from 2011 to 2019. Uh, and we're going to be, uh, she's an ideal person for this conversation in particular because we're going to be focusing quite a bit on uh, the public health emergency of COVID-19. Now, medical doctors are supposed to follow the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, which is a, a, a very sound rule of thumb for healthcare, and it might even be more important uh, if elected officials in positions of power could be bound by that rule. Uh, unfortunately, the first do no harm rule was violated repeatedly and flagrantly throughout the COVID-19 public health emergency. Uh, when we talk about federalism, we, we often use this famous phrase about the states being laboratories of democracy, uh, as if that's an unambiguously good thing. Uh, but the fellow who coined that phrase, Justice Louis Brandeis, uh, in the course of coining it, celebrated the ability of state governments to try, quote, novel social and economic experiments on their citizens. Uh, we had plenty of that over the past three years, uh, and plenty of uh, novel uh, social and economic experiments uh, in the course of uh, trying to fight a novel pandemic. Uh, We've seen some of the results, young children who remained isolated and masked through two years of, uh, of crucial social development. Uh, we've seen rising deaths of despair and economic ruin as a result of some of these experiments. And yet South Dakota under Governor Nome was a striking exception to the, the general trend. In South Dakota, there were no statewide stay-at-home orders no statewide mask mandates. It's the only state in America never to order a single business or church to close. And as the governor herself put it later, I never even defined what an essential business was because I have no authority to declare someone's livelihood inessential. Uh, South Dakota has, over the past few years, partially as a result of, these, of this approach, been number one in the country for personal income growth. Unlike its neighbors, uh, it's uh, enjoyed net in-migration to the state. Uh, and uh, also unusually, in August 2020, Governor Nome was the only governor to decline President Trump's offer of extended unemployment benefits. Who does that? Uh, turned down uh, money from the government, but uh, that was the policy they per pursued in uh, South Dakota to spectacular results. Uh, looking back in her 2022 State of the State address, Governor Nome could report that the state of the state was stronger than it had been in its 133 year history, and that, quote, this did not happen because of what government did, it happened because of what government did not do. Uh, joining for us for this conversation, leading the conversation, in fact, because I'm go going to get out of the way in a moment, is uh, someone with detailed knowledge and actual on-the-ground experience in uh, the area of healthcare. 
That's uh, Dr. Jeff Singer, uh, Cato, Cato Senior Fellow in Health Policy Studies. Dr. Singer, at Dr. For Liberty on Twitter, if you want to follow him, knows something about the Hippocratic Oath. He's been a general surgeon for some four decades. Uh, he's a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. And I can attest that he's the real deal. His handwriting is terrible. <laughs> Luckily, his analysis is clear and sound. Uh, very early on in the, the midst of a national panic, uh, Jeff was one of the was one of the first analysts to uh, start talking the talking about the fact that COVID nineteen would that zero COVID policies were. Uh, a dead end that COVID-19 would become endemic like the flu, but like the flu with effective treatments, it would be manageable. And it was not to be an excuse for novel social and economic exper experiments or, or restructuring uh, American life in pursuit of a, a zero risk society. Uh, so with that, I'm going to, as I said, get out of the way and hand it over to the good doctor to kick off today's discussion. Thank you, Gene, and thank you, Governor Noam, for being at the Cato Institute today. Um, in uh, October of 2019, that recently, the World Health Organization published a white paper. Um, I just have that. I printed the cover page from it where they basically were giving their recommendations on how to prepare for the next influenza pandemic. And in that paper, they recommended against lockdowns, contact tracing, border closures. They even recommended against uh, entry and exit screening of existing travelers. And I'm reminded, for example, of state police in Rhode Island and Florida who are stopping people from other states from coming in. Um, and it mentioned the need to consider trade-offs so just a few months later in 2020, um, pretty much the, most of the world uh, responded to a pandemic in a way that was unprecedented in public health history. We've never had these worldwide lockdowns. There was a lot of groupthink involved. Uh, internationally, uh, Sweden stood out and was criticized for its light touch, as they called it. Yet three years later, Sweden compares uh, pretty well with its European neighbors in, in outcomes and sustained less societal damage and less damage to children. In fact, it, schools stayed open and the test scores didn't drop. Fortunately, our federal system, as Gene mentioned, uh, differs most management to the states and uh, different states took different approaches. Uh, some governors had lighter touches, but I, I would think South Dakota among the states stood out probably the most for probably the lightest touch. So uh, I would like you to uh, explain to us what made you decide to go that route when there was so much, in a way, peer pressure from, from the press, from pundits, from other governors, and from public health officials to kind of uh, fall in line and, and take this almost zero COVID approach. Well, thank you, Dr. Singer. Thank you to Cato for hosting me and having me here today for this discussion. It's an honor. Um, you know, I would say that we all were talking about COVID long before it came to the United States. If you remember, it was hitting other countries previously. So as leaders in the country and as the White House was looking at our response and what we would do should this virus come to our shores, um, we all that had a responsibility to serve people and to be making decisions on their lives were evaluating that. I... 
I'm a farmer and a rancher. I think you guys know that. I spent my whole life in agriculture, raising this world's food, um, ran a hunting lodge and a restaurant, a lot of different businesses. I was not a health expert when I got elected to be governor of South Dakota. Um, in fact, the whole first year I was governor, um, we had were dealing with a bomb cyclone that had hit the state and the entire state had flooded. So I had 63 of my 66 counties were declared federal disaster areas in 2019. Did a lot of crisis management and businesses and patching families back together. Thought for sure 2020 was going to be a lot better. And then we got to the end of uh, 2019 and started to hear about this virus. We got our first cases in South Dakota on March 10th. And um, we had done several months of preparation prior to that, though. I started to talk to folks around the world before the virus ever came to our state, um, looking at studies of viruses, trying to learn as much as I possibly could from health experts on what our response should be, looking at what other states were doing as they got cases, and recognizing after spending hours and hours with my general counsel and constitutional attorneys what my authority was as governor. What, what did I have the authority to do? What did I not have the authority to do? I knew that the day I was sworn in as governor, I had held up my right hand and taken an oath. And that was to uphold the Constitution of the state of South Dakota and the Constitution of the United States of America. And so I really wanted to know, you know, what decisions is, is my job? What is my job and what is not my job? And so we had done that work prior to the virus ever coming to our state. I knew that if I were to make a decision that impacted someone privately or in their private business or dictated as other states were that they closed, that that would be a taking, a government taking of their business. And that I would open up our state to the liability of potential litigation and then the taxpayers would be liable for potentially hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars that they would be have, have to be paying out based on my decision for businesses that would close because of the ramifications of making that kind of a decision. So every time uh, you know, a decision like this came, it was always based off of what was my job and not overstepping my job. I'm just a big believer that when you have leaders overstep their authority, especially in a time of crisis, that that's when you break this country that that's when you lose a lot of the rights and freedoms that you have. So it came from me personally being informed on the virus and understanding the medical research so I could be confident in my decisions, but it also was me very much staying focused on what the job of governor is and, and not doing more than that, but also recognizing that communication was key. You know, we ended up being the only state that never once closed a single business or church, um, never mandated anything. Um, I just told my people, I'm going to stand up in front of you and tell you everything that I know, um, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to let you use personal responsibility to make the best decisions for you and your family, and we're going to get through this together. And overwhelmingly, the state responded. Uh, they appreciated um, that trust and recognizing that, that we were going to do all that we could to protect people, but that it wasn't my job to stand up and mandate and make the decisions for their families that they should be making. It's interesting, though, it wasn't without conflict. Uh, you know, we had, you know, hours and hours of conference calls with, with just governors on the phone as they were making decisions. You know, behind the scenes, we would talk several times a day. Once I hung up a phone call with governors sharing science or research or how they were making their decisions, what most people didn't realize is that then I was getting on the phone with all of my 
mayors in the state and talking to them and telling them what my decisions were and then telling them what I believed their authority was and it wasn't. Also county commissioners. I would hang up the phone then have a conference call with all of my legislators. So I spent most of my time after making my decisions managing other leaders and then communicating to the public what we were doing, which I believe was a lot more work and effort, but it paid off in the fact that we had a united, uh, you know, state in South Dakota, united people that that really understood the unique approach that we were taking, and they really did believe that it was the right thing to do. Were you getting any uh, criticism or pushback from the other governors when you would have your conferences? We were. We were. We would share and be have very candid conversations, but you know, we we had a. It eventually ended up being a conference call on a daily basis of governors of states that were still open, that hadn't shut down their businesses, that hadn't put in place mandates. And we started with probably 16, 17 governors uh, that kept getting smaller. You know, then you'd have a call the next day and there'd be a couple of them missing and you'd see a press release that today this state decided to close businesses because the spread was happening at a rapid pace. And then or you'd have a governor that would say, tomorrow I'm putting out a press release and deciding that I'm going to close my schools and businesses so I won't be on these calls anymore and you know, kind of saying goodbye to us. That call kept getting smaller and smaller until there was no one for me to talk to anymore <laughs> because it just, the political and, and the pressure that, that I think leaders were facing was, was incredible. And it was a lonely time. It was, it's a lonely time because ultimately I had a lot of, I have an executive team and I had attorneys that were advising me and telling me my options and my administrators from my hospital systems. I spent a lot of time with talking to them and, and, and working with them. But at the end of the day, they all would look at me and say, governor, you just have to decide. And, and it came down to that for every governor. And I think that the fear of them saying you didn't take action or and people died was so much that they eventually overstepped their authority and took actions that they shouldn't have. As I said earlier on about uh, overseas, you know, Sweden was in a, sort of a similar uh, situation. We had a conference about Sweden uh, in August at the Cato Institute, and uh, one of our scholars, Joan Norberg, is, uh, he lives in Stockholm, he's Swedish, and he said that uh, in Sweden, because he lived through this, uh, the government and the public health officials, they gave their, what they considered to be their best advice to the public. And they basically just treated the public like a bunch of grown-ups and let them make their own decisions. And his experience in Sweden now, of course, they're different cultures too, but most people in Sweden followed the advice and, uh, and used the information uh, to mitigate harm to themselves. Is, what did you find in your state? Our folks did too. And I would say that I didn't just get criticism from, you know, people in the state, but it was outside the state. And if you all remember, it was every night on the national news. It was whole, you know, TV shows at night just kicking me in the head. You know, Rachel Maddow would go after me for an hour um, on her show. I wouldn't even know what was going on until the next day. People would tell me, did you see what they were saying about your decisions last night? So the the criticism was there, and what surprised me the most was even the recommendations on mitigation measures that were coming from the CDC and coming from folks um, that didn't make any sense with the research that I was reading. 
uh, over and over again, I was surprised by how many times I had to stand up at a press conference or say, the best thing you can do is wash your hands. I mean, I was just surprised that over and over again, that still the best thing that you can do is, is wash your hands. And if you aren't feeling well, you can stay home, you know, but, but it was, and take care of your neighbors. If you have people who want to stay home, let them do that. We also had big events. If you remember in South Dakota that year, we had still hosted the Sturgis motorcycle bike rally in South Dakota. We held the first professional sporting event uh, after the pandemic started with spectators in the state of South Dakota. We had the July 3rd event at Mount Rushmore. Uh, we did it all based on science, and but told people that if you were scared, you had the freedom to stay home. But if you wanted to go, here are some steps you could take, but you only you have the right to make the decision on what you're willing to do as far as attending these types of events. Well, let, let's uh, talk about trade-offs. Um, uh, at Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics came out with a study about a year ago. It was co-authored by Cato Senior Fellow Stephen Hankey. Notice I'm trying to plug Cato a lot. Right, I like uh, and uh, I like um, that uh, they, they showed uh, that lockdowns in Europe, quote, only reduce COVID mortality by 0.2% on average, and shelter-in-place orders reduce COVID mortality by on an average of 2.9%. And then just the other day, the, the Paragon Health Institute released a paper and um, using data from the Oxford Government Response Index, they found that states with more stringent restrictions did not have improved health outcomes, but had worse economic and educational outcomes. Now you were explaining to us how, you know, most of your decisions were based upon what your belief as to your authority as a governor and about the rights of your citizens. But how much uh, did trade-offs play a role in your decision-making, uh, and, and what did you see as, as a result of that? Well, I would, I mean, I would say that, you know, we struggled when they first told us that we were going to have this virus hit our state. The projections that they gave us was we would have 300,000 people that would get sick, that we would have 100,000 people in in the state that would potentially die. I mean, the, the statistics that they were giving us from health organizations in the country were frightening. And you could see how so many people that were forced to make decisions were making their decisions based out of fear and making their decisions not based out of factual information. So as we continued to make different decisions and encourage people to keep their kids in school and, and to help our schools set up mitigation measures if they'd like to, but also, you know, the in indication was we would overwhelm our hospital system. So we set up, you know, National Guard sites that would help care for individuals. We never had to utilize them. Um, we got through it in a way that I think was quite remarkable in, in volunteer and participation levels. But we also, if you remember in 2010 or 2020, went up on air with, commercials talking about South Dakota in the middle of the pandemic. You know, our number one industry in the state of South Dakota is agriculture. Our number two industry is tourism. So when the rest of the world was shutting down and telling everybody to stay home, we knew that our economy was going to be devastated if everybody that usually traveled to South Dakota to see Mount Rushmore or to see our beautiful Black Hills or our lakes, if they all stayed home, it was not going to just... Um, be a sad thing that happened to that family, but for our economy, it was going to devastate us, which is heavily reliant on those visitors coming every year. So I went up with a national 
advertising campaign inviting people to come to South Dakota. If you um, weren't going to be taking a trip or if you were locked down at home, please come to South Dakota and enjoy our wide open spaces and our freedom. And people came in historic numbers. They took a road trip to come visit South Dakota. And they said when they crossed the border, it felt like they entered a whole different country, that they were shocked by how it felt normal, um, how our kids were in school, how people were walking up and down the streets. They were still going to church. When the rest of the world was shut down, South Dakota was still living a normal life. Those folks that came and visited, they went home and packed up their families and moved back to South Dakota. When I first ran for governor, what I ran on was the fact that we needed to grow our state. South Dakota's wonderful, but it's small. And frankly, our businesses were not thriving. Uh, our economy was pretty stagnant. Our kids were graduating from high school or college and leaving to go find their career opportunities. And when I campaigned to ask South Dakota to make me their governor, I campaigned on growing our economy and recruiting more people to come back to our state. 2020 gave us the chance to tell that story. And people overwhelmingly picked up and moved to South Dakota. And now we're growing at five times the national average. I would say that, um, you know, I don't have beaches to recruit people to our state or beautiful Januaries and Februaries that makes them want to come and spend uh, their time with us. The reason they wanted to come to South Dakota was simply for freedom. And they, they came and that has caused us to thrive in a way that South Dakota never has now. We've grown our economy um, so quickly and so fast that we have the fastest growing incomes now in the country, the fastest growing housing developments. Our economy has been the strongest in the nation. I have record surpluses and revenues coming into our state. In fact, I'm proposing the largest tax cut right now in our legislative session that we've ever had in the state's history. And remember, we don't have an income tax in South Dakota. We don't have a personal property tax. We just have a four and a half cent sales tax. And I'm proposing this year that we repeal all the sales taxes on grocery store items to help every single family that lives in our state. So because of these record surpluses we have, because we've expanded our economy and families there are doing so much better than they are anywhere else in the country, um, we're able to see the economic benefits of that freedom and telling that story of how South Dakota is so different than anywhere else. Even if you remember in 2020, when all those riots and the violence were happening all over the country, um, I decided to do a national marketing campaign just to law enforcement officers. And for one week, we told the law enforcement officers in the country, listen, if you want to live somewhere where people respect you, if you want to live somewhere where the community will wrap their arms around you, then move to South Dakota and come be a part of our way of life. And that first week, we had over 900 law enforcement officers from 41 states say, I want to come to South Dakota. And since then, we've had thousands. So it it's amazing how if you use the facts and data to make decisions and not be moved by fear, especially when it comes to health um, concerns and, and public health crises, like we're going to continue to see, they continuously are using this now to control people. Um, if you reject that and message directly to the people, it resonates with them and it can not just turn your life around as far as your personal freedoms, but also as far as your benefits and your ability to thrive economically as well. Well, but it, even in country, in states or countries that had a lighter touch, like in Sweden where people were trusted to make their own judgment, because of the pandemic, a lot of people 
right. modified their behavior. So there, there was a, definitely a downturn everywhere in business right. and in, uh, in, in, in social activities. So that clearly that must have happened as well in South Dakota. It did, it did happen, but people got really innovative. They probably kept their business open, but they figured out a different way to make those customers comfortable that maybe didn't want to interact as personally with them. And that we saw a lot of efficiencies built in, uh, but we saw that those business owners made different choices based on what worked for them and their model. As governor, I would have never been able to do that. Uh, made a decision that would have helped all of them specifically how they needed it. And it drove a lot of innovation and it drove a lot of cooperation like we wouldn't have seen. I, the most unfortunate thing I think that has happened the last several years is that now we've discredited our public health officials. I think the distrust that people have in leaders and in those who are medical experts now is going to be something that will be a detriment to us in this country into the future because they grabbed, really what happened is the Chinese Communist Party and their grab of control, their communist control that they, we brought that into this country and states instituted that same government exercise of power grab that, um, frankly, in this country should be alarming to us. We saw that in in states that was much like what China was implementing. It's a It was a communist method for grabbing control into the government. We saw from state to state here in the United States, and it's something that became much more normalized, which is concerning for me. Um, to be able to push back on on that kind of government control, I think is incredibly important that people have to know that there's a state like South Dakota where it was different. People have to hear the story that there was a place that did it different and were thriving because of that, because it truly is why our founders gave us a country like this and why it needs to continue to be defended. I was shocked by how the government told people that they couldn't gather in large groups. So people gave up their freedom of assembly. They just rolled over and gave it up because the government told people they couldn't go to church. They gave up their freedom of religion. We saw fundamental foundational rights. People just willingly gave over to the government because of a public health scare and that wasn't based on any scientific data. And that's alarming to me in this day and age that we live in to where the government now has learned the power that it can have even right here in the United States. I think what probably happened, I mean, I think we all witnessed, lived through this. So early on, I think everybody was, the goal was to try to, uh, as they used to say, flatten the curve, to try to, to, to not let the healthcare systems get overwhelmed. And there was this assumption mm -hmm. that this was gonna become an endemic virus, right. like influenza, like the, the numerous viruses that caused the cold, and we're gonna have to learn to adjust mm -hmm. to it being with us. Uh, but at least in the beginning, let's try to make sure our healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. And that made sense to everybody. That's, mm -hmm. Everybody went along with it. But somehow, slowly, over time, in many areas of the country and in areas of the world, Australia, New Zealand were also mm -hmm. like that, it, it, it sort of morphed into, let's get rid of COVID, zero COVID. And as long as you're going to do that, then you're going to be doing this forever. That's right. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, talk about public policy since we're a public policy research institute. And one of the, one of the good things you did as, and so all the other, I think every governor did as well during the pandemic was uh, um, temporarily suspend a lot of regulations uh, so that people could get access to healthcare that, and, and by of course suspending these regulations, 
uh, it, it was a tacitly ex admitting that these regulations stand in a way of, of the good flow of healthcare. Now, you have fewer to suspend because uh, uh, your state already doesn't have certificate of need laws. Right. Most, uh, 32 or 33 states do. Um, you're one of the states, like my state of Arizona, that allows uh, full practice authority to nurse practitioners. And like my state of Arizona, your state allows reci reciprocity of licenses to doctors from out of state. So you had less. But it, but it didn't a couple years ago. We we allowed that, and now we've taken my executive order and made it law. But it was just a couple of years ago where I had to make that. Oh, okay. So that was what was, what was we did, you know, suspend a lot of these regulations. Um, but it did allow us the opportunity to see what was necessary and what wasn't, and to really relieve that burden. And so I was going to ask you, so uh, we in, at Cato, we've been trying to find if any of these uh, suspensions that all the states have done have caused, have any harmful, have any harmful consequences. We can't find any evidence. Did you find any evidence? We have not found evidence to that. In fact, it, it pushed us to become much more efficient and take better care of patients in the long run. We even, because we're such a rural state in some areas, people were not having good access to health care. So we, um, because of the, uh, I had an eight-year plan to get out high-speed internet access and broadband access to every corner of the state when I first got elected governor. As soon as we had these kinds of revenues coming in and our economy was thriving so much, we fully funded that program in a year, which allowed us to institute telehealth capabilities in places of the state where we never have been able to do that before. Now we've connected telehealth to many clinics outside of the hospital systems, but even in schools, um, in ambulances, where we're delivering these consultations and high practice um, specialists and giving it to patients that didn't have that kind of expertise available to them before, that we were able to do because we could see that we could deliver that kind of care in a way that, that offered them you know, the kind of health care they deserved, but also did it much more efficiently, and it allowed us to use the skill sets of of health experts that maybe didn't even have the legal authority to operate before. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, for example, in the matter of telehealth, so most states suspended the requirement that you have a license in state to provide telehealth services during the pandemic, and almost in every state that's expired now. Um, again, I'm I'm an Arizonan, so yeah. forgive me for being proud, but my, my state in 2021 uh, passed a law, I think we're the first state in the country where any healthcare practitioner licensed in any of the states could provide telehealth services to Arizonans without having to get an Arizona license, yeah. which basically made permanent the temporary relaxation. Right. Uh, are you considering anything like that in your state? We have that ability. I don't know if it's necessarily for every single healthcare license. I would have to go back and, make, and see if it is or if it's just for certain specialties within the healthcare system. But this year we have a bill in the legislative session that is expanding those same authorities and licensing reciprocity and, and recognizing those licenses for all professions, even outside of healthcare. So that ability to see that, and the governor that served before I brought a f fundamental licensing bill when he was governor and it was killed overwhelmingly, very controversial. Now after going through the um, process that we did by allowing these this type of care to go forward during the pandemic, now people recognize that recognizing these licenses helps these individuals, if they are going to come to our state, to immediately get to work and provide for their families or to provide care for South Dakotans or um, to deliver care in areas that through telehealth that they weren't able to before. And, it, and in mental health areas as well. 
speaking of that, just put on your radar, there are, there, there are some reform, reform proposals uh, that are gaining traction around the country. So for example, in mental health, uh, five states already, and there are several states that are considering this, and the, for 30 years, the uh, multiple federal agencies, including, including the military, uh, have uh, allowed doctorate-level clinical psychologists to get extra training in psychopharmacology to be given authority to prescribe psych meds, which kind of increases the, the workforce of prescribing uh, mental health people. And another uh, reform proposal that started in Missouri in 2017, and now it's in four other states, you know, a certain percentage of, uh, of graduates of medical schools end up not getting a residency program. They, they're just left out in the cold. So they've created this uh, category called assistant physician, not to be confused yes. with physician assistant. Um, and it's sort of like an apprenticeship where you, you are able to work in a physician's office sort of uh, that as an apprentice. Oh. So you can keep your skills up and, and make an income while waiting for the next year to come by where you could try to get into a residency program again. And Missouri is the first one to do that, but now it's in uh, Arizona, Arkansas, Kansas, and Utah. So just things to put on your radar. Good. Absolutely, yeah. that's fantastic. I have a paper coming there out on that go. soon. All yeah. right, good. Um, let, let's, uh, should we, is it time to go to questions yet, you think? Gene, uh, you wanna handle that? Uh, we're we're going to be taking questions from both the online and in-person audiences. Uh, if you're out there in virtual land, uh, you can submit questions directly on the event webpage, Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter using the hashtag CatoHealth. A uh, couple ground rules for, for questions. Uh, speak clearly and directly into the microphone. Uh, announce your name and affiliation if you think that's important. Um, more importantly, uh, try to stick to the topic, uh, COVID-19 response, healthcare and regulatory policy, uh, powers of state governments. That's the sort of thing that people came here or tuned in uh, to hear about. So please suppress your urge to ask about Chinese spy balloons or Prince <laughs> Harry's memoir or whatever else is you're, you're into right now. Um, and finally, uh, usually, something of a problem in, in DC audiences. Uh, uh, make sure they're questions, not speeches. You know, get to uh, fairly quickly to something that ends in a question mark. We'll all appreciate it. Uh, so uh, yes, sir, out there in, on the periphery. Sorry, I made you walk about as far as you. Mark Lerner, very impressive, Governor. Uh, two questions. One is your primary role, I guess, is to protect the health and safety of your citizens. Did you find it uh, difficult to sleep at night, worried about what the virus was going to do? And part two, talk to us about the teachers' union and opposition about kids going to school. Well, yes. Uh, I, you know, I, I had to tell myself, I, I tell myself consistently, you know, that... Um, my job is not to worry or to live in fear. It's to make decisions out of facts and science and to share that. So, but yeah, I would say anybody who's a mom and a, a grandma, which I am, and has family, and you're 
looking out at all these people that you dearly love and recognizing whatever you decide is going to have an impact on them. And then having it be so controversial was, was a very interesting dynamic. Um, I would say that my family that was with me the whole time, uh, you know, recognized probably the stress that was on me at times, but also we knew we were making the best decisions based off of, of what we had. I was just always surprised when I would turn on the news um, and hear what was being said because it didn't reflect what was on the ground in South Dakota. And that's what I consistently kept telling other governors is I said, you're losing perspective by watching the news. Um, I would tell them to turn off the news and start going and looking at their state and and the demographics of it and how they could respond. And because uh, we had people that wanted to give, you know, the authority in other states, they were arresting people and for going out and not wearing masks. And they were doing things like um, that that were that you just couldn't believe were happening in America. So it was lots of decisions. And then every time a decision like that was made, you were constantly getting questioned by the press on how you made that decision and having to justify it. Uh, overwhelmingly, though, for me, keeping perspective was important and knowing that as much as these decisions were on me, I would make my decision, but then I had to be educating people all the time. What surprised me was the pushback I got from local leaders. I had mayors calling me and crying, begging me to make the decision to lock the state down so they didn't have to make a decision in their city. I had county commissioners who were pressuring me and calling the press and attacking me because they didn't want the responsibility of making the decision. It was, we also had, if you remember the meat processing facility, that the whole national news talked about being a hotspot. Um, and we were working in that situation the entire time, but it was so twisted and perverted in the press that it didn't reflect the efforts that we were conducting there. Um, and I'll remind everybody that was a Smithfield processing plant, which is a Chinese owned processing plant, which did not want to be cooperating with me to take care of their employees either. So, um, you know, it was a very contentious situation between me and the ownership of that plant and the CEO and, um, you know, we were fighting those fights on a daily basis. I, my nature is not to be in conflict. You wouldn't know that probably from watching and, and hearing what's written about me, but I tend to be a person that is more of an introvert. I love people uh, and I love being with people. But for me, if I was going to go do something super relaxing, I'd go fishing or sit in a tree stand or go chase cows. That's kind of what I would do. So the fact that I'm in a job where it's a constant um, back and forth and can be incredibly negative, um, you know, is a, is a different experience, but something that I think more than ever people need to know and, and, and that there are leaders who make decisions based on, uh, you know, not what's in the news that day or what will get them the next best headline, but what actually is their job and, and that job alone. I'd like to ask you, uh, I think the schools opened in the fall of 2020 in South Dakota. Is so, that you know, if you remember when the White House and President Trump came out and asked for 14 days when people could mm -hmm. bend the curve, you know, slow down the curve, we recommended that our schools close for two weeks and gave the option up to them and to their school boards if they wanted to. Um, but after that, you know, we did a, uh, I called a press conference and said, listen, we have to be open for business. Our kids need to be in their classrooms if there are school districts where kids are home. 
they should be in their classrooms learning from their teachers and and school districts and school boards overwhelmingly did that there may have been people were upset with me because i wouldn't mandate how those schools educated their kids there was some schools that maybe you know had kids stay in their classroom all day long there was some school boards that decided their kids had to wear masks um, you know the education lobby was pretty ugly during that time with not wanting to have the kids in the classrooms um, but they had a responsibility to do that. So yeah, it was back and forth. Every decision was challenged by a different entity. But um, you know that people came in and wanted me to dictate what private businesses did for masks. They wanted me to dictate what they did on vaccines. That's not my job. A private business is private property. It's just like if I were to come into your home and tell you how to live in your home. So that was a very different decision than every other governor made as well. Um, and it ended up being controversial, but I still believe that it, it was right. It's the right decision. And when you have decisions like that, that erode your private property rights, will face challenges for something like that for years to come. So I'm wondering how, how much attendance was there then in this K through 12 uh, starting, let's say, around September of 2020? Was it generally a... Yeah, it was really good attendance. I would say 80 to 90% of the kids were in the classrooms. You know, the classrooms all look different, and they maybe put up different kinds of, you know, barriers or teachers taught from different areas of the room, or maybe they ate lunch in their classroom too, so they didn't intermingle for a while with the entire school. But those were all decisions that the local school boards made that I didn't make. And any data yet on... On school test, oh, our kids are leading scores. the nation in educational yeah. outcomes. That's what I think is so remarkable is that um, our kids are leading the nation with with how they're um, reaching their educational outcomes because they were in their classrooms with their teachers, and and there's you know clinical diagnosed syndromes now of children who were mandated to wear masks where they're not speaking and where they're not communicating properly because they didn't have the chance to learn from watching people's facial expressions. And, and that's just not our story in South Dakota because we didn't have those requirements and our children were able to grow and to develop in a normal manner to where they're benefiting from it today. Chad, do we have an online question? Uh, yes, Governor. We have uh, actually a few people online uh, are remarking about uh, your decisions to turn down federal money at times. Um, specifically, John Jacobs uh, notes that in August of 20, you were the first governor to decline extended unemployment benefits. And he's asking um, what that meant for your state and how you feel that that helped the state recover um, from specifically related to that decision. Well, if you all remember when President Trump offered those elevated unemployment benefits to help people who maybe were out of their positions, we were the only state that said, you know, thank you, Mr. President, for that flexibility, but we don't need it. Our people want to work. And overwhelmingly, people did. Um, we have had uh, the lowest unemployment rate that we've had in our state's history for a very long time. In fact, I don't know the numbers today, but just, you know, right around we have less than five or 600 people in the entire state of South Dakota that are on unemployment today. Um, that's remarkable. Our people still value uh, the purpose of getting up and going to work and didn't get on a program where it was beneficial for them just to stay home and collect money from the government. Um, and, and I think that that has been uh, a great savings, not just for our federal treasury, but also for people that were out there serving each other and benefiting their family. Their incomes have gone up because they've been in a job like that. And because we recognized our low unemployment rate and people that still wanted to get up and go to a job every day, businesses relocated because of that. We also received 
tens of millions of dollars of rental assistance dollars that the Democrats in Congress attacked me for last year because we didn't spend it. Well, we didn't spend it because people didn't need it, because they were paying their rent, because they were working jobs, and we returned over $80 million back to the federal treasury of rental insurance assistance dollars that they sent to us that we just didn't need and didn't want. Um, you know, people didn't ask for it because they were out working and therefore it wasn't spent. And I wish more governors would have done that um, because many of these extensions that we've seen of those federal ARPA dollars or federal bailout dollars are still going out the door to people who still aren't back in the workforce. And that's what's incredibly challenged this country with getting back to normal. Yes, sir. Wait for the microphone, please. Thank you for your, for your very informative presentation, Governor. I'm Leon Weinshaw, retired from the State Department. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned to other other governors stop watching the television to find out what's going on. Well, some of us here do watch television, and we remember the horrendous pictures of what was going on in New York the overcrowded hospitals and morgues and the body bags piling up. I'm and you mentioned, of course, all the open spaces in agriculture in South Dakota. I'm wondering, do you feel you're able to act or not act as you did because of that wide open spaces? Could those, could your policies have been replicated in, in a state like New York with urban congestion, overcrowding, public transportation, et cetera? Uh, does, does that account for a lot of a difference in the policies? Well, we do have very crowded areas, big cities in, in South Dakota as well, where we had the same type of environments that they have. And South Dakota has an older population than the vast majority of states. Most folks don't know that we're, we're in one of the top three states for folks that are over the age of 65 that live in our state too. So if you look at the percentage of our population that were vulnerable or highly susceptible to this virus, we were more exposed than probably other states because we had such a high population of people who could get very sick from the virus. I remember during Governor Cuomo's press conferences, he was having, talking about how he was being held up um, as a model for the rest of us as governors to follow. I did the Sunday morning shows um, one Sunday. They had him on right before I had to come on. And they asked him, George Stephanopoulos asked Governor Cuomo to give the governor of South Dakota some advice because she needed it on how she was handling the COVID-19 pandemic. And then you, um, I just remember thinking how that was how ostracized I was at that time, that they were asking Governor Cuomo who killed thousands of people um, for, by taking unconstitutional actions, asking him to give me advice because I needed it. So. No, I, I think that at the end of the day, we all had the same type of environments in different places in our states. And that's why it wasn't appropriate for me to make mandated decisions from the state level. I may have a town of 500,000 people over here that have very heavily congested areas or families where four generations were living in apartments, but it would be very different from a small town 200 miles away where there was 300 people in that town all living on ranches that were you know, a mile or two apart. So it for us to think that we can make the best decision to cover all of that um, would just be ignorance. But unfortunately, it was the easy decision and many, many leaders did it. Yes, ma'am, right in the middle here. Uh, 
Hello, Governor. My name is Marilina from the Epoch Times. I was just wondering, since your state is thriving based on your decisions, what about applying this in a national level? And um, I was wondering if maybe change your thoughts for running for president. <laughs> well, that would be off topic. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I honestly, this country um, has a disaster of a president right now that is projecting weakness, not only on the national worldwide stage, but also economically. And the types of mandates that are coming out of this government are fundamentally changing our country. So I hope we get the best leader in, in the White House to lead this country, not just um, being willing to take on the tough issues and tough decisions as we face some of these challenges like we've seen that are unprecedented, but also gives us a little hope and a vision for the future. This is the greatest experiment that the world has ever seen, what we've been blessed to be a part of. We woke up this morning in the United States of America. We're more blessed than 99% of the people in this world just because we woke up here. And, and the people who live here have forgotten that. They've forgotten how blessed we are. And if we lose this country, where do we go? Where do we go if and have a better chance at opportunity and at freedom? So we need a leader in the White House that will do that and make the hard decisions to cast that type of a vision. We have time for maybe one more. Chad? Uh, yes, Governor. We've got... Uh Again, a popular topic in the online questions asking if you would expand a little bit more about uh, some of the legal advice that you touched on earlier as far as what the risks uh, you felt there would be the states. And also if you felt that other governors were getting that same advice and, and just chose differently or if, if there was difference of opinion in, in the advice that they may have been given. Well, I can only speak anecdotally because I wasn't in their offices when they were getting advice and wisdom. I know we talked about it on our calls when we were on Zoom calls or when we were on conference calls on what kind of legal authority they thought they had to be making the decisions that they were making. Many times I was the one asking that question. If we had a governor out there that was mandating masks in schools, I would ask them on what legal basis they thought they could do that or where um, on, you know, their constitutional authority was to where they could mandate a closing of that business. You know, under the Constitution, a private business is private property, and it's to be treated exactly like your private home would be. And I know that I open up myself to litigation from that business owner. If I mandate they close and they lose business, if they go out of business, the financial impact of that they could sue me for, and I would lose in court. Um, there's court case after court case that proves that that I would lose in court, and then the taxpayers would be the ones making that business owner whole for a decision that I made that was outside of my constitutional authority. So every decision I made went back to that foundation. Um, you know, and if if leaders don't do that, that's how their positions change all the time. Is if you don't go back to the foundation for which you're making those decisions, which I think is what helped us be consistent and helped us continue to make those decisions. You know, I was telling somebody the other day that I'm not in the business of being able to just go out and say things and grab headlines. That And even bills that I sign, my, my governor's office, we're in the middle of legislative session right now, and every bill that gets introduced during legislative session, I have my staff do a bill analysis on it. They look at every single bill, and there's hundreds of them, 
and they have to give me the, an analysis of what that bill does. What happens if this bill gets signed into law? What's the impact of it? What happens if this bill does not get signed into law? What litigation does it open it, us up to? You know, where where is the constitutional authority for this? The last question on that bill analysis says, uh, how does this bill impact the next generation? Which forces us to think in the governor's office, not just of what what is a good headline for the next three or four months that, that works politically for whatever the discussion is in the country, but what happens to our kids 10 years from now? What happens to our grandkids 10 years from now if this bill gets signed into law? What kind of precedent does it open us up to? What's the next bill that will be introduced because this one was brought forward? What happens if I sign a bad bill into law and it does get challenged in court and I lose in court and then that precedent is used for future court cases? So that's what governors all have to use when they look at how they're making decisions in their state is not just what looks like a great talking point to have in a newspaper the next day, but what are the long-term ramifications of every decision that we make and making sure that we're focused on that because our children and grandchildren will be living with the consequences of these decisions that we've made. And unfortunately, in many of these states, there have been so many bad decisions made that it, they're no longer unprecedented. Now they're normalized. And that's when you see the whole perspective of the public change, and then you see a country that doesn't stay as great as it was when it was given to us. I think that's a, a good place to, to wrap up. Uh, thank you, Governor, and thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank you all for coming. And uh, uh, for further examination of these issues, I urge you to check out uh, the Cato website, www.cato.org, including our pandemics and policy series. And now, please join us for lunch. Continue the conversation outside in the foyer. Thank you. Thank you.